0: Let us turn in our Bibles for our public reading this morning to 1 Kings 13, reading verses 1 through 10. 1 Kings 13, 1 through 10. Beginning to read then with verse 1, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. And on you, he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign by the same day, saying, This is the sign of which the Lord has spoken, surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. Then his hand, which he had stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him. And became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so I was commanded for so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water, nor return to the same place. By the same way you came. So he went another way. It did not return by the way he came to Bethel. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. We have before us today an extraordinary story tying together the power of God with the word of God. And um, this reminds us It's such a fundamental lesson of theology pointing to the importance of the word of God over everything else that we dare not pass it by without considering the dimensions of what God says here because there are so many problems in the church, so many temptations that we might have in our own lives to deviate from the word of God, to let our ears be caught up with The novelties of our day and the novelties of our culture. The kinds of um, charismatic thoughts that might possess us. that They're certainly charismatic with the world. They are so attractive to the world. The world seizes upon them as if these things could not possibly be contrary to what they're teaching. And yet God's word says something different. And we are challenged there. Like with... um, Like... uh, in the Old Testament where uh, the the prophet says that uh, he didn't know about the others, but for he and his house, uh, that they would follow the Lord. They would follow the word of God. And so we have this extraordinary account here of something that happened to King Jeroboam's hand that calls attention to the integrity and to the veracity of the word of God. Uh, Certainly it was a lesson that Jeroboam would remember the rest of his life and even though he did not even though he had no great desire no no great piety for the lord as soon as it happens he cries like a little baby for help from the same god that he was desecrating in terms of his uh, construction of this false temple this false altar in bethel there in the northern ten tribes and so it is a great lesson and um I think it, uh, it it's one of those poignant lessons that we can hang on to in our lives, and it, it can uh, cor- help us. It can be a correction to us on so many different levels. Um, uh, we've we've labored somewhat with it through our uh, his church history class lately, which has been about on Puritanism. We've been focusing on this idea of the Word of God and how central it is, and how we've seen how Rome. Uh, wanted to elevate the ceremonies of the church and make them preeminent. And our forefathers, our Calvinist forefathers, our Reformed forefathers, they kept emphasizing the word of God, that yes, God had ordained that we have sacraments, but even the sacraments must, be, must have the denomination or the meaning of the word of God, and you cannot have a, sacra- a ceremony without the clear teaching of the word of God. The Word of God has priority. So uh, let's delve into this passage and uh, look into it. You've got an outline there in your your bulletins that we will follow and that you can sort of uh, take the sense of the sermon home with you on this account. Now, if we do not consider the context of this great work, we miss out so much because, remember, God had planted, like, a, like the Marine Corps, a landing place so that the earth could be retaken for the kingdom of God. Where, where was that landing place? Where was that, uh, that location? Where was that ground? Well, it was in the land of Palestine in Israel, and uh, God had planted there uh, the kingdom the Old Testament Kingdom the idea was that through that kingdom the knowledge of God would become larger and larger and larger until, the, until it would fill the whole world. We know Even as God speaks to Abraham, he says lift up your eyes to the north and to the south and to the east and the west He doesn't give him uh, immediate borders like the Euphrates River or the Red Sea or the, the Mediterranean Sea He calls him to look even further than that in the directions of of, of the uh, four points of the compass that was ultimately the expanse that God had in mind and so in the New Testament where our Lord Jesus tells us he sends the disciples out the Apostles out uh, to be missionaries into the whole world we see that this is just part of God's old plan so here we find ourselves in the Old Testament on an occasion where this this landing that God has made in Israel is under threat Solomon has died. The Davidic kingdom, which is the high point of the Old Testament kingdom, the the Davidic kingdom is under threat because of the death of Solomon. Rehoboam, his son, has begun to rule, but Rehoboam is a weak man, and from the scriptures we see, he's a foolish man. He's more concerned with his own vengeance, with his own glory, than he is with the kingdom of God. So he's a selfish man. He does not understand the the broad scope of the kingdom of God. And in the midst of that then, uh, Jeroboam, who is a young, very talented uh, military fellow and politician in the north, he's been forced because of his jealousy and uh, labors against Solomon's kingdom, he's been forced to flee to Egypt. But now Solomon is dead. And so Jeroboam comes back, he sought to come back. There's a certain popularity to Jeroboam, a certain charisma. He, he's uh, begged to come back to uh, the north and uh, solidify the, the ten tribes and their uh, their apparent glory in the face of Judah and its growth. I remember a young theological student reading, uh, something of the Old Testament and uh, Old Testament studies on the, the the split of the kingdom, and the the professor that I was reading said that even before the actual split, there were these tensions between the tribes, mm-hmm. that uh, the Judah did have the apparent leadership glory of the twelve tribes of uh, of Jacob, and and so the the, tri- the twelve tribes, especially the more significant tribes of the north, uh, like uh, Israel, uh, that they were there was a jealousy there, so that that ultimately led to this division. And you see the division, the, the jealousy is bubbling underneath the surface. You see Jeroboam come to the come to the fore, and then the um, this uh, civil war, as it were, uh, it, uh, it is uh, successful under Jeroboam's Baal's leadership. But of course, this is against the declared will of God. Uh, we know that in God's secret will that uh, he permitted this to take place, that it was something that he had orchestrated that would point with even greater significance to the to his son, Jesus Christ when he came, because the Old Testament kingdom would fail. But this is not according to the declared will of God, the, the, the revealed will of God, the Bible of the Old Testament, where this was not to be. Israel was to be, uh, everybody was to Raise up the flag as it were and salute and and get with the major program that God had instituted for his Old Testament people. But here on this occasion, Jeroboam, in his presumption, decided that this was a good idea. Not only that, but of course Jeroboam, it says in the, the neighboring text that we're dealing with here, Jeroboam was worried that if the people of God, if the people of these northern ten tribes, if they went south, for the yearly festivals to Jerusalem and the temple there, that the people would be um, uh, confused by this stuff, and uh, that they that their allegiance to the ten northern tribes and the kingdom that had, he had established there, that 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 they might be confused and uh, it might al- ultimately undermine uh, the ten tribes, and so he institutes a, a, a pseudo temple, a pseudo altar, a fake, a fraud there in Bethel. And it was to this place then that God himself raised up this prophet uh, from the south, from Judah, who goes and makes these announcements about both just the the rise of Josiah, who would be a positive king for Judah, and also the destruction of this altar that had been built there in, um, in Bethel. And so, so that's the, that's the background to the story that we have here this morning. And so this prophet goes and uh, he makes his announcements. Now, I would argue that the, the anonymity and the, uh, the unknown nature of this prophet adds to the clarity with which God clothes this announcement about the word of God. You notice in the very first verse it says, and behold, a man of God, doesn't even give his name. A man of God went from Judah to Bethel, but it does tell how he went. He went by the word of God. And of course, this is the secret uh, will that God had declared to this prophet. Uh, And Jeroboam Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Now this was a, a right only of the priests, of the Levites. But Jeroboam had taken that right to himself. And then Jeroboam cried out, Or I mean, I'm sorry, the prophet cried out in verse two against the altar. He cried out against this false worship, this institution of worship that came by the good sense of men, which is bad, the bad sense. God, in for worship, God declares uh, what he wants clearly in his word. And when men come along and They want to use their cultural endeavors, their cultural insights to say, well, I think the church needs to be hopped up a little bit. We need to energize the church with a few of these artistic ideas of ourselves. And maybe we should hang some pictures over there or create an entirely different architecture that focuses upon uh, the altar instead of the word of God. You know, maybe these things would be a good thing that we need to do. So Jeroboam had these kinds of ideas and... uh, but in this case, the prophet who went there cried out against the altar. He cried out against all this false religion, uh, all of the fake stuff that had been dreamed up by Jeroboam and some of the others. He cries out against it and he says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child Jeroboam by name shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that same day by saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes of it shall be poured out. Now, in the first point here on the sermon, I point out that God's word is always sovereign and powerful. We have here, though, just an an opportunity or an illustration of how powerful that is. God does not always show his power. He does not always display his power as he does on this occasion. But this is a good lesson for us that every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord is sure. And that none. the Bible says none of his word returns unto him vain. In other words, it does not fail uh, to accomplish the purpose which he has foreordained for it. And so... We have an illustration here of God's power, uh, and I've already argued that the, the anonymity of this prophet articulates or emphasizes the power of the word of God even more, because God does this through a man. He doesn't do this through one of the other, the prophets like uh, Ezekiel or Elijah or Elisha who had great names in the land. They were were disparaged anyway, despite their power that they showed. But in this case, this is a no-name prophet who comes from Judah. And he confronts the brashness and the pride of Jeroboam and makes this pronouncement. Uh, And it's against that then that um, uh, Jeroboam exercises his anger he holds out his hand and he pronounces a curse upon this prophet. We have here in the text uh, it, it says um, in verse 4, when Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against his altar, that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Arrest him! So we have basically here a contest between two words. We have the word of Jeroboam. We have the word of God. How do they compare? Is there any contrast between the two? Well, we see a dramatic contrast here because even as Jeroboam's arm is extended out, pronouncing a curse upon this prophet, arrest him. And the idea was that he would be arrested and probably put to death. Even as his finger is in the air, the hand withers and in such a way that he cannot draw it back. Now we think of the dramatic potency of the lord in this this is the same lord who created the heavens and the earth this is the same lord that breathed life into mankind as he created him this is the same lord that animated the birds to fly in the air and directs them and uh, and governs how the insects work and how there's a, a harmony with all the things that god has made and so god takes this immense unlimited power that he has focuses that upon this arm and this hand and this finger of infidelity that was pointing at the prophet whom the Lord had raised up and sent from Judah to make these pronouncements there in the northern ten tribes. Now when you think about that, when you think of the, the, the broad background of Israel and the, the division of Israel that Jeroboam had helped to foster, and you think of the presumption that Jeroboam had in terms of worship that he, could, that he could worship the Lord however he wanted. And he would lead Israel in this, not just himself and his own impiety, but he would foist that upon all of Israel. And you think of the finger, the hand that he held out pointing to this prophet. Arrest him! Arrest him! And the power of God, immense as it is, Powerful as it is, damnable as it can be, that power of God fell upon that presumptuous hand until Jeroboam was reduced to terror and begged the man of God to pray that God would heal his hand and, his, and, uh, and then even wants to get chummy with him afterwards and invite him back to his back to his dwelling that. Probably was in his mind that he might uh, bask in some of the glory of this prophet and show that he was uh, good buddies with him and that uh, the, the royal house of Jeroboam was uh, a place that the people should invest themselves in their strength. So, but that, that was not the case but the, because the prophet of God wouldn't, wouldn't do that. The prophet of God wanted to maintain the stark difference between the word of God and the word of men the word of Jehovah, the Ancient of Days, and the word of this usurper king, Jeroboam. And so he makes this pronouncement. Now, not only did the the hand wither, but God displayed his power over the false worship of that day. He displayed his power over the false church of that day. We're going to learn in the church history class this morning how, um, how Bishop Laud in the 1600s, as a preface to the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith, how Bishop Laud uh, sought to persecute the Puritans of his day and make decrees uh, like demanding that all the Puritans not worship God according to their freedom of conscience and according to the word of God, but that they would worship according to the um, the dictums of the, uh, the prayer book that Laud had created, the, the, the director of worship that Lot had created. And um, uh, he, had no, he had no hesitation to alter the worship of the Church of England in that day and, and to reverse it from its Puritan and Protestant roots. Some of the great men of the church at that time reversed these things uh, so that the church would become more liturgical, uh, less focused on Christ, less focused on the Word, more focused on ceremony, more focused on the, the, the bishops and the archbishops and the church hierarchy than on the hierarchy of the living God and the angels that circulated around his throne. And so uh, uh, we'll see that Archbishop Law himself, much like a Jeroboam, uh, did not have his hand withered, but he had his head cut off by the English parliament. Because they were so offended that this man would enter and take his secular governmental office and powers and enter the church of Christ and re-ornament the church of Christ, realign it, rearrange it according to his desires. Well, uh, this man of God in, in Jeroboam's day, he comes and he says, he makes this pronouncement against not only Jeroboam, but against the altar And and so the altar that Jeroboam had constructed, now remember the altar was a place where the sacrifice would be made. The whole idea was that the, the sacrifice would be efficacious and powerful. We believe in the efficaciousness of Jesus Christ and we believe in the power of his sacrifice, of his atonement. These people had the same beliefs but they were focused on their altar, on their truth and upon the the orthodoxy that they had decided to construct for the ten tribes. But in this case, the altar itself is broken in half and the ashes of the sacrifice that they had made on top of the altar to show God's complete disdain for this. The altar is cracked open and the, the quote, the holy ashes that are upon this altar are shown to, to have God's derision. Jeroboam had derision for the living God and in this case God shows his derision for Jeroboam and his sacrifice and for the whole religion that had been invented by these people of God that should have known differently had that not been in the in the in the wilderness where God had showed them so adroitly that the the worship of the golden calf was wrong that it was uh a terrible error to make and it was an offense against the, the name of the living God had God not made this perfectly clear, had God not shown again and again that it was not up to men uh, to dictate how they might worship God, but it was up to God, it was up to men to follow the orthodoxy that was taught to them by God's servants, the Levites and the Aaronite, uh, the, the Aaronite uh, priesthood of the day. And so they'd had many of these so-called lessons, but here they were, uh, reforming the church of God at that time, but not according to the word of God, but according to their own foolish ideas. And so God withers the hand of Jeroboam, and he cracks the altar. And the holy ashes are just poured out upon the ground. God profanes the sacrifices of Jeroboam and the, these Northern, the, the church, the so-called church of the Northern Ten Tribes. People today, and, and Protestantism, and certainly in Roman Catholicism, they seem to have no sense of history in this regard. They have no sense for what true holiness is in terms of worship, in terms of, of uh, true orthodoxy. They, they believe that they can invent both, whether orthodoxy or worship, they believe they can invent it as they would and force other people to do it, like Bishop Laud had desired in the 1600s, even cutting off the ears of men who opposed him and branding them with, uh, with harsh, uh, burning brands upon the face to be a testimony of his power. Well, on this occasion, God shows where he will break the altars and wither the hands of all such men. As do these things. I'm often bewildered by men who think that they can do these things and then develop or create families of prosperity for themselves. And I've seen over and over again how God sometimes allows men to have apparent powers like this in the world. But then you look at their overall family life. You look at their overall trajectory in terms of prosperity. And you see how, God works havoc upon them. How many are the millionaires of our day that cannot control their children, whose children's trajectories are going off in a a hundred different ways, uh, contrasting from that what their parents think they ought to be doing. And the parents just lose control. So they've made their millions, they've made an accomplishment here or there, but it all works out to, to nothing. And then there are some of the poor of this world who follow the Lord Jesus Christ and and prosperity is poured out upon their children and their children's children. Where is our hope today? Is our hope today on the things that are apparent, that are visual, uh, that are more phantasms of vainglory, or are our hopes set upon the things which God has wrought, and especially upon what God has taught in his word? And so God's word is always powerful and uh, sovereign, Uh, Such power is always available, but it's not usually displayed. In this case, in this case, it was displayed in a very, very dramatic way. Point three, I say the wicked are effectively ignorant of this power. Uh, Jeroboam, as he pratted about and prated with his words, his empty, vain words, he, uh, on one hand, the Romans tells us that the unbeliever, has some sense of the, the, the power of God, but in terms of its effective power over their lives and the the effective ability to change their own behavior to, to match what they know to be true, they have no power to do this. And so they go off and God gives them the reins to run free uh, to their own destruction. But sometimes, point four, sometimes God delights in tying his power to his word so that mankind will better forewarned about it so that we ought to make no mistakes about what God has said and how we ought to live. I'd love to apply this then to our lives. You see, God gives these illustrations in his word of the significance of these things. Uh, Can we apply this to the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Is that word really secure? Is that word really a word of power? If God could manifest his power, would he support the gospel that he has tendered to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does he really believe that we? it's a good thing for us to proclaim it, to preach it to neighbors and friends? Is it, or is it a vain thing, a vain word? Is it just an empty thing? And all of us here today, hopefully, are testimonies to the grace of God and to the power of the Word of God. The Word of God is sure. Uh, I know, as a young man, I heard the gospel, but I didn't really believe it in the sense that I that I grasped it, that I that it, that it possessed my life. But the day came where the Lord taught me that this this Word, this gospel, that I had. I had to put my hand to, in some senses, and vowed to follow when I was earlier in life. God, one day, showed me how this was not just a good idea, but it was an idea that was able to grip my life and change it from beginning to end. Helped me to start my life all over again with a new new assurance and a new hope. And I've seen uh, God's power work, incidentally, Throughout my life, many times I've been worried about it. I've I've thought that I was one step away from destruction, but here I am, an older man, and God's truth has been there. God's word has been sure, and I'm more I'm more confident in His word today than I ever was when I was a, a younger man, because I've seen I've seen the withered hands of of the false prophets and the false leaders over the years. I've seen God's blessings upon uh, the children of the faithful uh, and uh, unto many generations out. And so uh, I would would apply this teaching to the gospel for sure. Other things that the, the Lord teaches us, the Lord tells us not to be worried about things, but to know that every hair on our head is numbered by him, that he knows each of us by name. So he promises us, don't worry about these things. He he compares uh, our lives to the lilies of the field that that bloom so wonderfully and so beautifully. And he says, has anybody tended them besides me? No. So he encourages us to have faith in his general providences and in his ability to bless us. He has pronounced it. He has said it. Believe on these things, he says. He tells us in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Should we worry that the powers of this world are out of control, that God has some that God somehow doesn't see what He needs to see, that we are outside His perspective, that we'll, He'll He'll lose us because of the complexity of the events and the people and the things of this world? It will be lost by, by the camouflage of particulars amongst the generalities of this world. No, He says, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down beside still waters. He leadeth me. Uh, into the green pastures. So every word of God, ultimately, such stories as this, support and encourage us every place where the word of God speaks. What is your challenge in this world today? I know you have them. Where are the places where you are tempted to doubt God's word? Where do you do? Let the Lord, by his spirit, remind you of the hand of Jeroboam pointing at the prophet and saying, arrest him. God arrested Jeroboam's hand. And it became like a a piece of stone. It withered. He could not draw it back to himself. And Jeroboam not repented. God may have gone further than that. just worked his way over Jeroboam's whole body. But Jeroboam was undone. He was humbled on that occasion and begged the prophet to help him. Bless the, bless the Lord for the faithfulness of this prophet on this occasion. Even, even at the point where Jeroboam promised him wealth and riches and acceptance and blessings and status and all of that kind of thing, by coming back to his house, and the, the, prophet, the prophet had learned his lesson too. He saw the power of God upon Jeroboam. He said, nothing doing. God told me to go back, to to not pause with you, to not spend any time with your house, but to go back by a different way. So ta-ta, toodle-pip, I'm gone. (laughs) And uh, you do what you will, but I must do what the word of God has told me, has bade me to do. So let us be so committed to God and his word. Let us be confident in it in this modern day. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou wouldst affect us with a holy confidence in thy word. Oh God, we pray for the modern church. We see it tantalized by so many false things. So many images and so many fancy trinkets that would catch its attention and take it off of the word of God. We we see the people of this nation that uh, are not afraid of thee. Who, would, uh, who, who doubt thy the, the creation and the, its sexual orientations and its decrees and think that they can uh, bring about a better, more blessed planet by uh, instituting new rules and new laws. Oh God, we pray that through the church of Christ the word of God might go out in its manifest ways and that it might lead to truth and to blessing, especially in and through the Lord Jesus Christ our great Savior and Lord in his name we pray amen